Amen. Hey, let's give it up for our worship team and our band. So, man, Kylo's sitting there listening to you and Lang too, sitting there going, Lenny who? That was, that was sweet. That was incredible. Thank y'all very, very, and everybody, incredible, incredible job. You know, when you seek to explore and explain the gospel, that, that is the core message of the Christian faith, much less to, to actually live it out, there are some essential elements that you have to include, some essential elements that if you, if you add something to them, you're not talking about the gospel anymore, or if you take anything away from them, it changes the essence of what the gospel, the good news of Jesus is all about. And if you decide to embark in a sermon series called The Gospel According to Rock and Roll, you get to have a little bit of fun along the way as you plumb the depths of the most profound and real, significant and important truth that the world has ever known. Last week, we started with the fact that everything, say everything, everything, everything begins with Jesus. That is that he is the Alpha and the Omega and all points in between. And as an expression of who he is, the fact that he is love, he created you and me for relationship, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved by him. These are the incontrovertible facts that are at the foundation of our faith. Now this week, we're going to take where we started last week and move into a Another truth that that initial reality dominoes into. Because the fact of the matter is, if we choose to participate in this relationship with God, with Jesus, then we are co-laborers. We are, by definition, collaborating with him to see his purposes fulfilled in this world, to see Jesus' prayer made a reality. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that's if we choose to participate, because the fact of the matter is he's given us the option. We have the choice to not participate if we so desire. But if we choose not to participate with him, then that choice puts us on an entirely different road.
I have to tell you the truth. I didn't know if I should clap for that song or not. Now, I don't think for one second that ACDC and the boys were intentionally making a spiritual statement. I don't think they were offering up a theological thesis for us to consider. But it might surprise them, and it may even surprise some of you to know that that song title actually echoes the words of Jesus himself. So don't send me an email. The reality is highway to hell is a reality. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, kind of his introductory message to his ministry, is explaining the fact that he is here as an agent of a radical religious revolution, that, that, that he is ushering in an absolute spiritual sea change in the world. And in Matthew chapter 7, he makes a very profound statement about the highway to hell. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 7 verse 13. He said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell, said Jesus, (laughs) is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. I want you to understand how important this reality is. Now, I think it's really important right from the jump that we acknowledge a couple of things. Number one, no one should enjoy talking about hell. I've seen people who like, their eyes just lit up when they talked about hellfire and brimstone and damnation. I don't think that's the heart of Jesus. But, But I think it's important for us to understand the reality of hell. And in this simple statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 7, he alludes to three central facts that I think are really, really important. Number one, and I would encourage you to write these down because, again, this is central to the message of the gospel. It's important that we spiritually metabolize what Jesus says here. Number one, hell is real. Hell is not a metaphor created by humanity to keep people in line. Hell is real. I want to talk a little bit in a few minutes about the realities of hell, but number one, hell is real. Jesus said there is, in fact, a highway to hell. Number two, God is sovereign, and we are not. God is sovereign. That means that God is the one who has wired up this world in an expression of love and grace and relationship. But it's also the fact that he is the ultimate authority. In in essence, what this means is God's house, God's rules. God's world, God's rules. You and I are created in the image of God for relationship with God, but that doesn't make us God. So, We have to choose to submit and surrender ourselves to the sovereignty of God in order to experience everything he's created us for. Number three, 
Hell is real. God is sovereign. Number three, people choose. People choose. If you don't get sucked into the argument like, how could a loving God send people to hell? A loving God does not send people to hell. We choose. Jesus says here, its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. So hell is real, God is sovereign, and people choose. I think it's important for us in the, at the beginning of this conversation to just kind of own some realities that we assume about hell, but are not necessarily biblical. We, we have so kind of cartoonized hell. And we think about, you know, lakes of fire and sulfur and horns and pitchforks and tails forked at the end and all that kind of stuff. When in reality, the picture of hell is much more stark. It's, it's much more present and real than I think any of us realizes. N.T. Wright is an Anglican priest and a phenomenal New Testament scholar. And I have just a, a brief, brief video that I want to show you as he talks about hell from the perspective of our perception versus scripture. Check this out. The word hell has had a checkered career in the history of the church. And it wasn't hugely important in the early days. It was important, but not nearly as important as it became in the Middle Ages. And in the Middle Ages, you get this polarization of heaven over here and hell over there, and you've got to go to one place or the other eventually. So you have the Sistine Chapel um, with that great thing behind the altar, this enormous great judgment scene with the, the souls going off in these different directions. Very interestingly, I was sitting in the Sistine Chapel just a few weeks ago. I was sitting for a service, and I was sitting next to a Greek Orthodox Archimandrite who said to me, looking at the pictures of Jesus on one wall, he said, these I can understand. And the pictures of Moses on the other wall, he said, those I can understand. Then he pointed at the end wall, the judgment. He said, that I cannot understand. He said, that's how you in the West have talked about judgment and heaven and hell. He said, we have never done it that way because the Bible doesn't do it that way. I thought, Whoops, I think he's right, actually. And whether you're Catholic or Protestant, that scenario which is etched into the consciousness of Western Christianity really has to be shaken about a bit. Because if heaven and earth are to join together, it's not a matter of leaving earth and going to heaven. It's heaven and earth being joined together. And then hell is what happens when human beings say to the God in whose image they were made, we don't want to worship you, we don't want our human life to be shaped by worshipping you. We don't want our, who we are as humans to be transformed by the love of Jesus dying and rising for us. We don't want any of that. We want to stay as we are and do our own thing. And if you do that, what you're saying is you want to stop being an image-bearing human being within this good world that God has made. And you are colluding with your own progressive dehumanization. And that is such a shocking and horrible thing that it's not surprising that, again, the biblical writers and others have used very vivid and terrifying language about it. But many people have, again, picked that up and said, this is a literal description of reality. And somewhere down there, there is a, a lake of fire, and it's got worms in it, and it's got serpents and, and demons, and, and they're out there coming to get you. And I think, actually, the reality is more sober and sad than that which is this progressive shrinking of human life. And 
that happens during this life, but it seems to me if somebody resolutely says to God, I, I'm not going to worship you, and it's not just not coming to church, it's a matter of deep down somewhere there is a rejection of the good creator God, then that is the choice that humans make. In other words, I think human choices in this life really matter. We're not just playing a game of chess where tomorrow morning God will put the pieces back on the board and say, okay, that was just a game, now we're doing something different. Um, the choices we make here really do matter. I, there's part of me that would love to be a universalist and say, it'll be all right, everyone will get there in the end. Um, I actually think the choices we make in the present are more important than that. Now, I share that with you not just because he has a British accent and so you believe whatever he says. <laughs> I, I share that with you, number one, because he's a scholar who has studied the scripture, and number two, his take on hell is perhaps more biblical than anything I've ever heard before. Well, whatever you believe or, or don't believe about hell, believe this. Hell is more about spirituality than it is geography. It's not just about going down instead of going up. It is about the complete absence of God. Now, I want you to, to really and truly take that in for a second. The complete absence of God. Think about what we know to be true about God, that, that God is love, that God is life, that God is wisdom, God is order, he is peace, purpose, creativity, he is joy. And to be sure, this created world is a good world, but we also know from what we looked at last week that our world has been infected. We, we are broken because of sin in my life, your life, and in this world in general. And so if, if it weren't for the hand of Almighty God, the presence of God in this world, I want you to think about what this world would look like without him. All of a sudden, that love becomes death. That, that love becomes selfishness. The life becomes death. The order becomes chaos. The peace becomes anxiety. The purpose becomes futility. The creativity becomes decay. It, it all breaks down. And that is hell forever. It is a sad and sobering reality. I think we've, we've gotten so jaded in our minds and just in our worlds, we forget this reality. When we talk about as a church family, the reason we exist is to grow the community of Christ one life at a time. We're talking about eternal realities in people's lives that you and I get to collaborate with a loving God and share with them the reality that they don't have to experience that. That not only can they experience eternal life in Christ, but they can begin to experience eternal life in this life. They can begin to live the life that is truly life. I, I want to capture just or really just quickly drill down into a few things that, that Dr. Wright talks about here. He says, Number one, you're colluding with your own progressive dehumanization. That, that hell contributes to our dehumanization, the, the chaos when we forget that we are created in the image of God. Male, 
and female, both bearing the image of God. And when we confuse, when we muddle, when we mangle those things, we are dehumanizing that which God created uniquely in all of the world to bear his image. The other thing that he said, I thought it was the reality is more sober and sad than that. But then he said, number three, that our human choices really matter. It's not just a, a case of, I want to be a good guy. I'm going to be a good girl. The reality is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. I want you to turn to your neighbor and with a smile on your face, look at him and tell him, you're a sinner. Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse, you probably know that better than anybody in the room. But our human earthly choices really matter. You see, it's important for us to remember that the reality of hell is a mirror reflection. It's a photographic negative of the reality of the goodness of God. You can't have the goodness of God without the reality of hell because the goodness of God means that he created us for relationship. You're here because God loves you, period. Now tell the same person that you just told was a sinner, tell them God loves you anyway. And now tell them, and I'm trying. So here's what you've got to understand. Because he is love, because he created us for relationship, that means by definition, we must choose to participate in the relationship. When I proposed to Julie, it was a question. I had a pretty good idea what the answer would be. That's what sent me to buy a ring. But it was a question. It wasn't a command. You you don't command somebody to love you. you. You invite them. You show them that you are worthy of loving. And then you invite them into that relationship. God did the same thing. If it wasn't an option, then it would just be an impulse. It would be biology. It would be a reflex. And that's not love. That's an instinct. Animals have instincts. Human beings love And so the reality is that hell just reflects the ultimate fulfillment of our earthly choices. Hell reflects, or heaven, reflects the ultimate fulfillment of our earthly choices. People say, well, pastor, what about the people who have never heard of Jesus? And that's a great question. But just for the record, before I get there, you ain't one of them. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that everyone who has ever walked the earth sees enough in the created order to know that we are not the top of the food chain. That there's enough evidence just by looking at nature and creation to say there's got to be someone out there who made all this. And so humanity, you and I and everyone, 
the Bible says, is without excuse because of the created order, the evidence that is evident to everyone. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't go share it with as many people as possible. You, you don't want them to just kind of worship a facsimile. If they could connect with the one true God and have that relationship, and you and I know that, then we ought to do everything within our power to let them experience that in this life and then beyond. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, that, about hell and the goodness of God. Hell and the goodness of God. Number one, hell demonstrates the justice of God. Hell demonstrates the fact that God is just. He is a good, good father. He is a good king. And as such, a good king imposes justice. That means that everything that has not been settled in this world yet will be. It will be made right. Justice is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance is God's, not ours. It's God's. And it's important for us to remember that this sense of justice that we all feel is an echo of God's personality that he's planted within us because we're created in his image. This is kind of the, the linchpin or the jumping off point for C.S. Lewis's classic Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, please read Mere Christianity. It is incredible. But Lewis begins with the premise that even small school children understand justice. Because if you're playing in the schoolyard, and, and let's say that you're playing football, and, and American football, not the British kind, but real football, and, and somebody commits a foul, at that point, the game stops. Everybody on the field knows it, and they cry, foul, there's a penalty. At which point, you either impose a penalty or you do a do-over, but you can't let that schoolyard injustice stand. And Lewis makes the point that we all have that inside of us. How many times as parents do we hear our children say, that's not fair. That's not fair. You know what fair? Fair is what you pay to ride the bus. <laughs> this world is not fair by virtue of the fact that it's broken by sin. Man, how many of you are the oldest child in your family of origin? Let me just see a show of hands. Oldest children, you understand this better than anybody. How many of us know that by the time the second, third, or fourth, or fifth kid comes along, parents are exhausted? Remember how diligent and disciplining they were when, when you were coming up? And you, they watched every little thing. And by the time kid number two, three, or four comes along, you're like, yeah, okay, I'm tired. Just, just don't die and don't wake me up. I, I read a book one time. The author said this about this exact thing. He said, it often seems that my brother and I were raised in two completely different households. He's 11 years younger than I am, and by the time he reached high school, the rest of us had all left home. The drug laws at home had changed as well. No smoking pot became no smoking pot in the house. Before it finally petered out to, please don't smoke any more pot in the living room. We all understand that dynamic, don't we? And there's something inside, we need justice. Some of us, man, some of you have a really, really healthy sense of right and wrong, especially where other people are concerned. I remember watching this in Emily when she was growing up. This was so fascinating. When she was three and could form a coherent sentence, she could make a legal argument. 
Julie used to tell me, she goes, she's either going to be or need a phenomenal defense attorney. <laughs> Emily loved to make arguments, especially for her brother Joseph, about how th this was kind of a gray area. And, and I realized she liked to argue for the gray area so that it was there for her use later on. But God is a God of justice. He will set everything right. Every atrocity, every sin against humanity and God, all of that will be made right. Here, here's what the Bible says. Psalm chapter 11, verse 6 and 7. And, and this is the poetic language of the psalmist, the songwriter. He says, he will rain down blazing coals and burning sulfur on the wicked, punishing them with scorching winds. For the righteous Lord loves justice. The virtuous will see his face. Now, if you were here at Easter, you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I thought that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that's why Jesus went to the cross. And you're exactly right. Good answer. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Because he took on himself all of our sin. He took on himself all of the burning coals and the sulfur that were rightly ours in judgment and justice. But then he did what we couldn't have done on our own. When he rose from the dead, defeating death and subduing sin so that anyone who would believe in him will have eternal life. This is what he did. This is what, you can clap for that, it's okay. So what, Clap for a highway to hell, but not the resurrection. I don't understand that. But anyway, <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm kidding. But, but hell demonstrates the justice of God, that he will ultimately give you, and he will give me, the fulfillment of our earthly wishes. That, that's a just and a loving God. Number two, hell demonstrates the gravity of sin. Hell demonstrates the gravity of sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Sin came in on the highway to hell. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. That's pretty comprehensive. Like, well, I didn't hear my name. You're part of everyone. Now, we can all, you know, put on a black turtleneck and sip cappuccino and discuss what is sin or what isn't sin. But the reality is all sin separates us from a holy God. He is holy and righteous, morally flawless. It's almost more than we can get our minds around. And as such, he cannot collaborate. He cannot relate to sin. And that's the ultimate gravity of it. It's not just pitchforks and lakes of fire. It's separation from the God who loved you and created you for life, who created you for love, who created you for peace, for purpose, for joy, for order. This is what he created you for. And your sin, like my sin, ruptures all of that. But Jesus repaired it. 
But hell is the ultimate expression of the gravity of sin. See, I can rationalize my sin. Anybody else rationalize your sin? I'm just curious. Am I the only one in the house? I, I can say, you know, I was having a bad day. This is just, I mean, mistakes were made. But again, when you understand that sin grieves the heart of God, sin grieves the God who loves you. I think that changes the game. All of a sudden, it's not just be a good guy, be a good girl, more pros than cons. But, but you understand that somebody who loves you is broken hearted because they know that your sin dehumanizes you and lessens what he created you for. It diminishes us. You don't have to raise your hand, but if, if you're a parent in the room and you remember the first time your child told a lie to you, you know, at first you're like, what? I'm sorry, what? This is, maybe this is just me. But I was like, do you know how much smarter I am than you? You didn't even finish the sentence and I knew you were lying. That, that was my initial reaction. But then there was another part of me as a dad. I was like, like we had such a good thing going here. We were getting along so nicely. And, and then you chose to just dump on it. Breaks your heart a little bit, doesn't it? I kind of think that's what God looks at. He goes, no. We had such a great thing going. You, you don't understand how much I love you. You, you. you can't imagine what I've got planned for you. Don't mess it up. That's the gravity of sin. When I remember that, I don't want to sin anymore. Because let's be honest, sometimes sin is fun. Yes, three of you, raise your hand. <laughs> Leave the preacher hanging. But when I think about grieving the heart of my father, mm -mm, that's different. That's not just kind of doing what I feel like and, woo, highway to hell, pate. No. I'm grieving the heart of God, and I'm rupturing relationships around me. And I was created for more than that. You were created for more than that. That's the gravity of sin. But number three, hell also, also demonstrates the power of God's grace. Don't miss this. Without hell, we cannot appreciate grace. Without hell, grace is not amazing. When you understand what the grace of God rescued you from, some of you may have seen this in the news a few years ago. Julie and I were sitting at Hula Hut one night having chips and hot sauce and tea. Seriously. And we looked up and there was a boat teetering at the edge of the dam that leads into Lady Bird Johnson Lake. I said, Julie, that boat's getting ready to go over the, go through the dam. 
And she said, the damn what? I said, the damn. <laughs> D-A-M. Julie. <laughs> oh. It's embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> but, but this guy had been out on a, on a pleasure cruise with a, with a girl and they'd gotten too close and the, and the damn floodgates were open. D-A-M. The, the, the floodgates of the dam were open. <laughs> and, and the boat got sucked. Now, the girl had been rescued before she went over. The guy went through the floodgates of the dam. When he went through the floodgates in that rushing water and through the grid, sucked all of his clothes off of him. <laughs> washed him downstream. He came up in front of those apartments in front of Lady Bird Lake Austin crawled out of the river naked and went and knocked on the door. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the person who opens that door. Can I use your phone? No. You and I will stand naked before God. Nothing hidden, holding nothing back. And at that point, your relationship with Christ will save you or the absence of it will not. At that point, the choice has been made. Hell shows us the power of amazing grace. Look at what Romans chapter 5 says. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. The highway to hell is broad and many will choose it. But, but Jesus didn't leave the highway to hell statement right there. That, that was Matthew 7, 13. Look at Matthew 7, 14. He said, but the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. You have heard the way. You know the way. In, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, you know where I'm going. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says, in my father's house, there are many, many, many rooms available, and I'm going to get that ready for you. You know where I'm going. And the disciples say, Lord, we don't, we don't know the way that you're going. And in John 14, 6, he said this. He said, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The way is narrow, but there's a way. There is a way, and his name is Jesus. I hope, I pray with everything I have that, that by talking about hell, your heart is opened up, your mind and your heart is opened up to the expansive power of God's grace.
And if you're here and you've already, you've already received it and taken hold of that eternal life that Jesus promises, that you just want more of it. That you just, you just want to chase after him with everything that you've got. But if you're here and, and maybe watching online and you haven't taken hold of that, why not right now? Why not just right where you're sitting? Take hold of the grace that is so amazing. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. If you're here and you are a follower of Christ, I'm going to ask you to please not be moving or stirring for any reason. But I'll, I'll, if you're a follower already of Jesus, then I want you to be praying with everything that you've got. But if you're not, if you haven't so far, then we want to invite you to do it right now, to begin that relationship. Just by praying right where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. Just silently talk to God and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your grace. I recognize that hell is real, that you are sovereign, and I choose you to follow you, to love you with everything that I have, with everything that I am. And I will follow you from this moment forward. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed for just a moment. But if that was your prayer, if you made the choice to follow Christ, this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to help with, with this moment and with what comes next. So if you would, I want to ask you just right where you're sitting to take out the program that you got when you walked in today. Just take it out right now and begin filling out the Connect card that's inside that program. Just fill it out. And you'll notice about halfway down or so, there's a place to indicate I committed my life to Christ this week. And then once you finish that, you can tear it off along the perforation that's there on the fold and fold it up and hand it to one of our ushers, one of our hosts on the way out in just a moment so that we can begin to help. We can pray with you. We can answer questions. And, and like I said, help with what comes next. The second thing that I want to ask you to do is our heads are bowed. Would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it high over your head. If that was your prayer today and you meant it, you began a relationship with God, your hand in the air is just a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you just made. And as a church, we honor that and we celebrate it. You can go ahead and put your hands down as we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. 